0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. You know how it's been real popular of late
1: to kind of mock the other Cavaliers. You know, SNL did that big skit kind of going after the Rodney Hoods and the Jeff Greens of the world and kind of comparing them to Roombas and all that stuff. <laughs> and, you know, it got a lot of chuckles and chortles on the internet here over the last week or two i gotta say though Andrew, after our last podcast i really identify uh with the other cavaliers because here i am in the middle of a high pressure playoff series Mm -hmm. and the guy my my teammate uh you know my leader my host (laughs) <laughs> uh, is screaming at me about how he loves basketball more than me and he loves Kevin Durant more than me. Right. And it's going on and on and on. And I'm starting, you know, the wheels are turning. I can feel the dirty looks, Andrew. And I'm thinking, wow is this guy going to quit the podcast? Is he going to leave in free agency? And then I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting there and I'm having this existential crisis, Andrew. I'm thinking like, do I even want to be here? Should I be the one who just kind of pouts his way out of town like Isaiah Thomas? I mean, this isn't necessarily you know, productive or fun. But then at the moment when it seemed like everything was going to break, there there you went in LeBron-like fashion with one of those unbelievable left-hand passes that Brad Stevens gushes about that no one else can make. Here we are screaming at each other on the last podcast, and you effortlessly— segue us into the buffalo wild wings ad copy so we're (laughs) and andrew honestly i think we're a little bit underrated for our ability to just shift seamlessly from ripping each other's eyes out into hawking wings beer sports
0: yeah well and i know that's what you live for really when you when it comes down to it you are kyle corver and the ad copy is your threes and uh, and so I was just playing to your strengths. That's that's what I was trying to do there.
1: No, it made it all worth it. You know, by the end of the game, it was like, yeah, you know, LeBron. It, it's a you know, it's a a compromise. Sometimes you've got to make it's a real <laughs> it's a real commitment. But if he's going to come out here and orchestrate like this, what choice do I have? Of course, I'm going to ride with him.
0: It's worth it. You know, the trade off is worth it. Let that's a perfect place to start. Uh, I think we we have to start with the. Eastern Conference Finals turned upside down over the last four or five days. And uh, we'll start with a comment from Tori, who says, I'm not a LeBron fan, but that man is going to silence that Boston crowd. TD Garden is his MSG, and I can already imagine the 56, 12, and 16 line that's coming in Game 5. He is going to end this real quick. And I got to say... I love the idea of the Garden as LeBron's MSG. I'd never really thought about it that way, but it's it's kind of true, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was there at the, the famous Game 6, and oh it my was God. stunning. That I'm yeah. so
0: jealous of you.
1: Yeah, well, it was the full experience, because on my way to the arena, I was... Just like consistently bumping into Celtics fans wearing slanderous t-shirts of LeBron. Like <laughs> yeah. every single t-shirt, you know, like I'd walk a block and there'd be another just completely foul swear word on a t-shirt. That and w- that I think
0: that's where the like hateful LeBron t-shirt market peaked Is is in 2011, right before game six against the Celtics.
1: Yeah, and like I go to Ann Arbor basically every fall and look, they've got a lot of like LeBron hates Ohio t-shirts that they like to, you know, sell on the streets, but it, it's no, it's a very tame version compared to what the Celtics fans are doing. <laughs> and the truly impressive part about the Celtics fans is even like 5 or 6 years ago before selfies and like, you know, viral photos really had completely taken over, yeah. the amount of excitement that they would get if I'd asked to take their picture in their t-shirt was just off the charts. Like, not only are they slandering lebron <laughs> they're, they're probably, dying to be
0: plastered across
1: the internet perfect they, they would love to be the icon of their city slandering <laughs> lebron and i don't know if you have to respect that but we should at least acknowledge it now he, uh are you convinced though that he, lebron's going to be able to buck this trend because i believe boston's undefeated at home in the postseason obviously the road's been a different story uh-huh uh So something has to give here, right? What gives? Is it uh, the Celtics' perfect home record, or is it uh, LeBron's greatness and and his reputation and the stuff that the emailer was alluding to?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. If I were a Celtics fan— and, and I am a Celtics fan as of the last what, week. What What is
1: this if you're mentioning? Uh, you won't stop with it. You've been sending me Larry Bird, Mitchell, Ness jerseys you want for Christmas. I mean, it's just over the top.
0: Yeah, I was complaining about the refs last night. Look, all I can say is if, if I were like a diehard Celtics fan, the next week of LeBron would be pretty terrifying. I mean, that 44 points in game four looked so easy. And it just... You don't want to come down to the wire against LeBron James. And if this goes seven, like I was t- I was talking to somebody last night, there's no way anyone is going to be willing to pick against LeBron in a game seven in Boston, uh, particularly because of the history there, but also just because of where LeBron is right now. It feels like he's kind of due for another moment where he just reminds people that he's the greatest player we've seen in the last 20 years. And so, I don't know, he's seeing the game so slowly right now, and it seems like he can do whatever he wants out there, or the the game is moving slowly for him. And, uh, I mean, watching him just bully someone like Jalen Brown, who is a really strong dude and and could hang with just about anyone in the league, and he just looked helpless against LeBron last night. And then they were getting the, the switches on Rozier, and he was, he was just doing whatever he wanted. So, I don't know, I think... Celtics panic is is perfectly reasonable right now, but it also, I mean, it's not over by any means because that this is how the Cavs season has gone. It's like for a week, they look disastrous and everyone assumes that LeBron is going to leave and it looks like everybody hates each other. And then they can put together these stretches where everything clicks. And so it's just, it's hard to ever really trust what you're seeing with the Cavs.
1: Yeah. I mean, both teams are totally different at home and on the road. There's no question. I was also a little bit nervous for Cleveland's perspective after game four, how much they were dwelling on how old everybody was. Like, I really think that they were just like listing off guys' birthdays, like Kyle <laughs> Korver. They
0: were fact-checking how yeah, old he is. And- it was like a point no. of pride for them. And it's, it's not a good thing that everyone is like 35 plus.
1: Yeah, especially when these series start to pick up in terms of the time of the games, you know, like there's not that the the break is already done, right? The Uh big break. So I'd be a little bit nervous about that. But, you know, I compared you to LeBron, uh, you know, to start the podcast. I want you to put yourself in his shoes. Now, he has that ability to just put together the 50 point triple double, you know, the kind of performance we've we've never seen. If you were LeBron, knowing that it's now, you know, a best two out of three series, as uh, Brad Stevens called it. Would you drop your haymaker game in game five? Or would you trust that you were going to win game six at home and save your absolute best for game seven, knowing that the pressure in those moments, you know, it gets to everybody. I mean, remember the Warriors in in game seven, their offense really fell apart in the finals. It just wasn't on that same level as it was in earlier series. Uh Everything just ramps up. And, you know, from Boston's standpoint, they don't have their game seven hero in Kelly O'Linick anymore. So that's going to be a (laughs) gigantic. gigantic hole in their offense. I guess I'm just saying, is this overthinking it? Or if you were LeBron, would you, uh, you know, would you drop that big road game in game five or game seven?
0: Um, well, first of all, let me make it very clear that I am not LeBron, and I don't know if I like this analogy. I let you get away with it at the top, but, you know, LeBron is a pretty difficult person to be around. I like to think that I'm kind of easier to work with. <laughs> um, but okay. I'll roll with it for the sake of argument here. I think that the if I were LeBron, I would be trying to step on Boston's throat in Game 5 mostly for the reasons you mentioned i mean the the calves rotation is old and it's going to be hard to keep everyone fresh through game 7 and uh you know guys like george hill guys even kevin love like really important players who have helped change the series over the last 5 days uh, you you're gonna want them as fresh as possible, and I think they're they've got the momentum right now. So if I were LeBron, I would absolutely be going into Game Five looking to empty the clip. And, uh, and which isn't to say if like if they lose and then win Game Six, I'm gonna be just as terrified as a Boston fan in, in going into Game Seven.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I'm with you. I mean, the amazing part for Cleveland is they still have the Rodney Hood game in reserve. Here, so. <laughs> exactly.
0: Uh, so you could save that for seven. That's a that's a good plan, a good insurance policy.
1: Man, you got to give Ty Lue credit. He's pretty funny on the podium. Like, he never says anything, right? Like, he's always dodging questions. He dodges a higher percentage of questions than every other coach uh in the postseason but when he got called to the carpet about the whole Roddy hood thing and he got all angry and aggravated about it and then immediately proceeded to just take the guy out of the rotation like the reporter was was asking him to do what a response (laughs) and didn't see that coming from tyloo a complete turnabout
0: yeah, I you know, I think that's one of his greatest strengths is he doesn't – he's not too wedded to Eddie philosophy. And, uh, and he's able to kind of flip things from game to game, even from game one to game two. Although if I were him, I would have just started Tristan Thompson from the outset. Uh, the one other thing I wanted to say is um, if I successfully jinxed the Celtics playoff run after jumping on the bandwagon last week – and they just crash and burn from here, it, it might be the proudest accomplishment of my career. Like, I would live happily ever after, at least for the next six months, if I successfully ruined this Celtic season.
1: Yeah, I was actually going to come on here and make fun of you because Boston's winless since you jumped on during the last podcast. I mean, they're, they're 0-2 with basically two blowouts. But yeah, if they went down in six games, they just ended the season on a four-game losing streak, you would be like the 2018 version of Isaiah Thomas's injury, wouldn't you? Like totally. walking around in, in <laughs> totally. human form.
0: And I will wear it proudly. But we should talk about specifics in this series and what actually changed. Because um, I do think it's it's... It's hard to know how much of it is is both sides kind of regressing to the mean. Um, but I think, like, Tristan Thompson owning Al Horford is not just a Twitter meme. Like, that is a real thing. And I don't think anyone can talk shit about Horford ever again after watching him basically alternate between guarding Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid in the Sixers series. But... I will say this version of Horford is the guy that a lot of people, including myself every now and then, have been talking shit about for the last three years. Like he's, he's very good, but Tristan Thompson can cut his impact in half. And some of that began in game two even, but it's really showed up the last two games. It's like if he's the number one option, that's a problem for Boston.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, Tristan's playing good defense and he's doing what he does really well, which is pound the offensive glass and require a lot of, you know, attention and energy on that end too and I'll be honest, when I'm watching this matchup it just frustrates me even more that Joel Embiid wasn't able to do more in that series, right? It's yeah. like come on. I mean, if you could have this guy who's just basically getting by on sheer will and uh motor, uh, like Tristan Thompson, I guess experience, you know, factors into it too. I mean, I think he's done a pretty good job of keeping his head uh, together, despite being in and out of, uh, you know, the lineup at times and, and, you know, getting bigger, you know, fluctuating minutes essentially and and changing roles. But uh, why couldn't Joel Embiid do that in the second round series? I'm still angry about that. I think he's angry about it too. I saw some of his Instagram comments sort of uh, alluding to that. But uh, I think not only Tristan, you know, kind of turning his series around, but J.R. Smith too, right? I mean, yeah. we saw him just you know, basically, you know, beating himself up over, you know, missing all those three pointers uh, in Boston comes back to Cleveland. I mean, you know, he he barely avoids an ejection in game two, it looks like the peak of frustration, like he's melting down, you know, he comes back for games three and four and and looks like a totally different player. So, you know, I I would kind of circle those two guys, you know, both of them uh, as being, you know, key reasons why the series is turned.
0: Yeah, I would also add George Hill to the mix. I mean, he was pretty much a zero in games 1 and 2 and looks like an NBA starter again. And like so the George Hill adventure continues, but he helps them a lot when he's out there and and actually useful. Um I also think the the Cavs I mean, look, they don't have the personnel to ever have a great defense, but they've been much better at running Boston shooters off the three-point line and forcing them to sort of create in the mid-range. And, uh, and that's sort of been the difference the past week. Like The, the Cavs are not going to ever suffocate anyone on defense, but they have stopped giving up laughably wide-open looks. And they've forced guys like Terry Rozier and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum to get out of their comfort zone and create a little bit. And those guys flunked that test on the road in Cleveland, which doesn't mean they can't go back to Boston and, and succeed. But I don't know. My, all of that brings me to sort of my, my realer takeaway from game four, which is that that, that game, because game three was kind of a wash. And I think both you and I expected Cleveland to go back and get that game. But Game 4 was close, and Boston was kind of clawing their way back into it for most of the second half, but they could never really get there. And it was the first time the entire playoffs where I was watching them and and thinking, man, they miss Kyrie, and this is why you need superstars to go get it done on the road.
1: Yeah, that's what I said like last week or, or two weeks ago when you wanted to trade him and Gordon Hayward. I, I never tried
0: him. to trade Kyrie. I'm not
1: going <laughs> to let that fly. But yeah, right? No, I think you said something along those lines, like, are they better without him? Or, or you know, you're you're taking up that uh, line of argumentation. And I just thought it was ridiculous. And absolutely, they missed him in both games three and four. Going back to Cleveland's defense, so I'm not going to bend over backwards and give them real credit for... Uh, you know, looking competent on that end. I mean, look, it's a lot easier to play defense at home when you have the crowd behind you energy-wise. Yep. And Boston shooters were still missing a lot of open shots. And I think, you know, the home road splits... Uh, for three-point shooting in this year's playoffs, I want to say it's like teams shoot 37 percent on threes at home and 33 percent on the road, or something like that. But there was an awful lot of shots where, especially the young guys, I mean, they're just missing shots that they make in Boston, and so you're you're essentially dodging bullets at that point. Mm-hmm. If Cleveland's going to really impress me and and do anything to make make me excited about this series, and I'll be honest, I mean, the whole time I'm watching this series, you're trying to tell me it's more entertaining and and all of these things. I just see two teams that aren't great you know yeah i see good teams i don't see any great teams and uh you know from that standpoint if cleveland's gonna do anything to really impress me here it's going to be to take their defense on the road to go and shut down boston's offense in that building and i'm still skeptical that they can do that you know i mean i think their formula for winning is what you started with which is lebron just completely eclipsing everyone else on the court and that's just that but if Cleveland was really able to grind out a road win with its defense, with this Tristan Thompson formula, you know, with their guys showing up and and communicating well and covering for each other and ramping up up their effort, then I would be impressed. And I guess some of that starts with LeBron too, right? I mean, wasn't his defensive energy and impact significantly greater at home uh, than it was on the road? And I guess that could be the X factor. If he's just been sort of you know, tanking his defensive effort or, or saving something, you know, for later in the series and just use the first two games as feel-out games, Right. Uh, then everything that I'm saying, you know, might look wrong. But uh, I still am improved at Mo with Cleveland's defense because they've had so many questions all season long and because they looked like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in terms of how they performed at home versus on the road.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a fair read on it. I, I'm not trying to say that they are suddenly great defensively. What I... What I Meant more than anything is that, like you said, the energy was there and there weren't like ridiculous brain farts where you're just like, wow, so you guys just decided not to rotate at all on that one. And and there's no one within like eight feet of Jalen <laughs> Brown in the corner. Uh, they had 20 feet of
1: space on Jalen Brown a couple times in games one and two. Like, I went back and paused. I did the, like, DVR thing and tried to, like, measure it out with, a you know, a ruler. I mean, there was literally 18 to 20 feet of space on some of his shots. I mean, you don't ever see that in the conference finals. Right.
0: It was it was kind of impressive. And you talk about LeBron using the first two games of of this series as, as feel-out games. I don't really think that's what he was doing, particularly in game two. Obviously, like, he came prepared for war but uh if if he did if any part of him was was doing that like that's just the height of arrogance and and again almost a little bit impressive from him uh and I I do I mean watching him like I don't really know what what else to say at this point but watching him just kind of carve up defenses is like one of the best shows in basketball um probably the best show and it was fun to just kind of be reminded of how incredible he is. And, and it, if if anything, it's amazing that it wasn't a bigger deal that he had a game like that because that has just kind of become the norm for LeBron in these playoffs. And we're all a little bit numb to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, what's more impressive, you know, back-to-back 40s or back-to-back 40s against Marcus Morris, you know, arguably the, <laughs> the greatest defensive player the in the The LeBron
0: stopper himself, absolutely. Um, I don't know. Can, can we go back to Kyrie for one second, though? Because I do think that there is something to the idea that this Celtics team isn't going to automatically become, like, a level better with Kyrie in place of Rozier next year. Um, I mean, they probably will. They'll probably be incredible in the regular season, but there's going to be a test in the playoffs because you see the way Cleveland is seeking out Rozier. Like, that's going to be happening to Kyrie, except he's worse on defense. And, And he's also, like... I think part of what's interesting about it to me Is that as soon as everyone is healthy in Boston We're going to spend the year talking about the Celtics As the biggest Warriors threat And it's going to put a ton of pressure on Kyrie To be the guy that helps put them over the top And helps turn a series like this Into like a five or six game win Instead of a, a seven game toss up And uh, and. To do that, he's going to have to be a better player than he's ever been, really.
1: Well, he's right on schedule to do that during his career. And I also think like pressure in those situations comes from not having a lot of help and having to do things you're uncomfortable with. And I think what's so you know intriguing about Kyrie's fit in Boston is he's got the coach who does the best job in the league of putting his players in position to succeed mm-hmm. and then covering up their weaknesses, right? And I think it would actually be you know, potentially kind of a Steph Light type situation where like Steph's getting picked on mercilessly uh, in the Western Conference Finals. But still, when he does Steph things like he like he did in game three in the second half, like that leaves a gigantic impact uh, on a game, on a series, you know, potentially it can break a team. And I think, you know, Kyrie is not on that same level as Steph, but he yeah. does, you know, similar things offensively. And, uh, you know Boston's already undefeated at home. You put him there, and and their offense is really, really rolling. I mean, you'd be, uh, you know, potentially breaking teams' wills. I think uh, even quicker than they have uh, if you have him out there. I hear you on the targeting stuff defensively, and you know they still haven't even played a team with like five true elite like playmaking weapons, right? Mm-hmm. Like they've played good offenses. You know Philly had multiple weapons and and certainly you know, complementary shooters. Uh, You know, you look at Cleveland, like their best five offensive guys is basically one ball handler and four shooters, right? Um, That's not the same type of dilemma that teams like, Golden State and Houston can put you in where, you know, everyone's capable of doing something on the court when they they go to certain lineups uh, and everyone can score from every position. I think that's where your concerns about Kyrie would really come through would be in the finals where it's like, okay, now whoever the weakest link is is going to get just targeted for an entire quarter at a time. Right. And I think he'd be able to survive just fine in the Eastern conference finals. And I'll say this when he had that season ending surgery, my first thought was, man, that really spoils the potential Eastern Conference Finals. And after that game 4, despite LeBron's heroic performances and I'm not trying to, you know, take what he's doing for granted or just write it off as oh, it's another 40-point game because it's incredible. Yeah. I the major takeaway to me from this series is it would be 10 to 15 times better if Kyrie was healthy.
0: Right? I mean, it would be fascinating just to see how he responds in some of these situations because I like Rob Mahoney on Twitter pointed out that like a lot of these possessions for LeBron he would be hunting a mismatch against Kyrie and backing Kyrie down in the post and for that alone like I would I would pay hundreds of dollars to watch that in the Eastern Conference Finals and hopefully that's what we'll get next year but um but and it, and additionally you mentioned the stuff with the the comparison to Steph Curry uh that's a pretty steep curve and it's not easy to to hang in there game for game with someone like Steph and he's going to have less help on the wings than Steph does obviously and uh well, he's going to have a lot of help on the wings though man like let's well, let's
1: not shade boss I mean you're supposed to be a fan here. you're supposed to see the <laughs> stuff through through green goggles I'll they put my green goggles
0: on in a second I'm just saying that like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are not quite as reliable as Clay Thompson and Kevin Durant. I don't think that's a hot take.
1: No, but I, wouldn't you say that Boston's wing core when you get Hayward back is yeah, probably Hayward. second that's best right. in the league? That's I mean, I, I think when, when you look at their full complement of guys 2 through 4 next year in terms of guys who can kind of play up, I would say Golden State is one, I'd say Boston's probably two i mean who who else would be in that mix?
0: no, you're right you're 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 right i I totally blanked on Hayward's existence. um well, hey, look, it's fine. he's gonna get traded this summer anyway. It. <laughs> yeah, it'll be cool. Kyrie and Kawhi next year. that'll be fun um yeah, I don't know i I just basically what happened to me last night is watching through the fourth quarter, I was like, man, this team needs Kyrie. And then I spent another hour thinking about how like the challenges that are going to emerge when Kyrie gets added to the mix and they're playing in the finals because it it, it isn't going to be a seamless transition. I mean, he's going to have to be great enough on offense to make the sacrifices on defense worth it. And I think he probably will be. Um, I'm not here to like concern troll Kyrie 12 months in advance, but uh but it's yeah, look, it's more ter- interesting than than I think a lot of people have realized as they project the future for the Celtics team.
1: You know, I think people would probably say I'm more pessimistic than most on Kyrie's ability. Look, if Terry Rogier is getting loose at times in this series, I mean <laughs> Yeah. Kyrie would be having a field day against Cleveland's backcourt and uh, it would be the type of situation where he'd be dicing them up so regularly that there would be, you know, low light clips going around of like, hey, here's 15 different ways Kyrie's broken Cleveland's defense. I mean, that probably would have happened. So um, it's an unfortunate alternate universe. We're stuck with what we've got. And I guess, you know, I'm kind of hoping that my series prediction was correct. Now that I think about it, you know, I called Cavs in six. I wasn't feeling great about it after game one. I was ready to hide after game two, but uh, I think you, you're onto something here. If, if LeBron tries to step on their throat, you know, I, w- I don't see any way Boston could get up and uh, you know win game six on the road. So I think it pretty much comes down to five.
0: Yeah, well, can I ask you this? Um, I'm not just saying this because I'm a, a diehard Celtics fan as of last week, but I don't particularly care about seeing this Cavs team in the finals. Like I, at this point... I am familiar with all the themes that we're going to hear if if Cleveland advances. Like LeBron is the greatest player of this generation. He's the closest thing we've ever seen to Jordan. He's incredible. And the cast supporting cast isn't as good as it needs to be, but they can still step step up sometimes. Yada yada yada. I'm just kinda over all of it. And I, I now that we're getting closer to the possibility of another LeBron win, like I really Would prefer to see this Celtics team in the finals just to sort of change up the narratives a little bit and uh, get a fresh look out there. And do you do you like identify with any of that?
1: Well, yeah, you you missed Jordan six and zero, LeBron three and five, right? I mean, (laughs) yeah, like (laughs) I'm good.
0: I don't want to do this anymore. Well,
1: I mean, I I would kind of say this: the Warriors fans are reaching peak arrogance here in the Bay Area because they have. considered the possibility of facing cleveland in the finals and i made the offhanded comment the other day to someone that this kind of looks like it'd be a a sweep i mean if you put cleveland versus golden state you know it's uh you know it's probably if they're playing to their full capabilities both teams that's probably gonna go down in four right and Uh the warriors fan actually stopped me and said no i think it would be five and i was like oh are you giving a game to lebron and their response was, "Oh no! Like it doesn't matter what he does. Golden State will just get bored and they'll just drop a game because that's what they always do." <laughs> Which is actually and, a
0: pretty decent prediction for the record.
1: Yeah, I kind of wondered if somehow you were like puppet mastering his his voice behind the scenes <laughs> because that seemed like something that you would say. But um, I think it would be a quick final series either way. Uh-huh. Um, I don't necessarily yearn to see the you know the the underdog Celtics, uh, you know, get lambasted by the Warriors. Um, but I, I do think that it would be kind of depressing pretty quickly uh, because the series would open in Golden State, you know, games one and two. I mean, those could be, you know, 30-point wins. And yeah. I think you get a lot of the people who are already frustrated about these blowouts and these one-sided games and the super team angst and all those things that have kind of been building here during the conference finals because of all the blowouts. Right. I think that would just reach a fever pitch.
0: Yeah, I I I agree with you, and um, it's funny. Like the ca- you you mentioned earlier that these past two games were not interesting at all compared to the Western Conference Finals, and I agree with you there as well. And I think the difference between the first two games in this series and the the last two games is that like it's it's strangely compelling to watch the Celtics find a way to win with the roster they have right now and watching the different guys step up, whether it's Marcus Smart or Terry Rozier, it's been a lot of fun. Um, I know fun is not part of the equation for you, but I've really enjoyed it. But then you flip it and watch, and also, as as fun as the Celtics have been, it's been really interesting to see LeBron have to sort of react to the, the state of the Cavs when they're not working, and uh, and I think that's, kind of wild to watch in its own right. Um, but then you flip it and you see this team, this Cleveland team kind of like just win by hitting 25 threes. And, and it's the same equation we've seen for the last couple of years. And I'm just over it. So um, so go Celtics. I'll, I'll double down on my Boston fandom. And uh, hopefully we'll get a reprieve from Cavs Warriors 4.
1: Uh, that sounds great. And hopefully... We'll get some wings, beer, and sports, right, Andrew?
0: (laughs) It's time for a
1: trip to B-Dub. So, Ben, tell me what's new. Hey, look, at Buffalo Wild Wings, they admit that they often go overboard with the limited-time offerings. But look, Andrew, we can't help ourselves. Take the new signature sampler. I mean, this is apps on apps on apps, Andrew. For $15, you can get wings and 3 shareable options like fried pickles or cheese curds and don't even get me started about the -the over-the-top nachos it's a literal mountain basically a glacier andrew (laughs) of crispy tortilla chips loaded with your choice of pulled pork or honey barbecue grilled chicken
0: corn jalapenos and more I love it. That was your moment in the sun. And you can also top it all off with our new Platinum Margarita at B-Dubs. Go overboard with the gang today. Get to your local Buffalo Wild Wings. Buy a gift card for your dads and maybe some grads. Go nuts. And uh, Wings Beer Sports Buffalo Wild Wings. The offer is available for a limited time while supplies last. Please drink responsibly. See that, Ben? We made it through all that Eastern Conference talk, and and the Buffalo Wild Wings read was the light at the end of the tunnel for you. And now we can move to the West. You mentioned the blowout problems that we've seen in the NBA playoffs thus far, and we could talk about Rockets Warriors here as well. But here's an email we got from Thaddeus that I thought was pretty interesting, who says... It's always jarring to see highlights from a basketball game from the 80s and 90s. It's frankly insane that anybody ever got anything done when there were 8-plus guys packed into the paint like that. I had a friend text me during Warriors-Rockets game 2 saying nobody can play any defense, to which I texted back a screenshot from, I think, a Bulls-Pistons game in the late 80s saying, it's just harder when you're defending more than 3 feet of airspace. And he continues on to talk about the, the blowouts in the playoffs, and he says, The one byproduct of that ugly slugfest of that brand of basketball is that a lot of the games in the 80s and 90s came down to the wire. The spacing and reliance on the three-point shot has, set, has meant that there are three outcomes of every game. Number one, poor shooting by both teams leads to a close, ugly game. Number two... One team buries all their jumpers, one team doesn't, and it's a blowout. And we've gotten a lot of number twos in these playoffs. And number three, both teams are locked in on offense, oftentimes making tough shots over good defense. And he says, I believe this is the crown jewel. So I that's my read on what's happened in the in the playoffs thus far. I think there's more variance with teams shooting this many threes. And it creates a situation where teams get down by 10 or 15 or 20 points and kind of just pack it in through the second half. And uh, and we've seen it over and over again. Do you agree with that? Do you have different thoughts? What do you think?
1: No, I mean, the basic crux is, you know, if you go back to the 90s, you know, in that famous Bulls jazz series where, you know, Mike is, you know, brushing out Brian Russell and entering the history books, uh, you know, with the jumper. I mean, almost all the games in that series were played in the eighties and nineties points wise. And now the best teams are consistently scoring above 110 or more. And partly it's because of the three pointers, partly because it's uh, the space that creates higher opportunity shots. Uh, Partly it's because just the evolution of smarter basketball um, partly it's because of pace and you know the hand check rules and all these things that we always go over. And I, I think another factor here in terms of the playoff blowouts, it's the home court advantage because you know you mentioned when you went to Boston, just like what an atmosphere it was to play there, right? And mm-hmm. it's the same thing in Cleveland. It's the same thing uh, at Oracle and and even down in Houston. I was impressed by you know their home court advantage. Now, obviously they didn't win both games down there, uh, but still it, it was a real sight to behold and. You know, to take Thaddeus' example of like comparing the '80s NBA to today's NBA, I mean, think about all the stuff that goes on in these buildings—the music, the fireworks, the light, laser light shows. Just you know, the 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 things they do to engage the crowd. Five different stunt teams and dance teams. I mean, that is a real hostile environment, and I think what you're seeing is it has kind of a warping effect, right? Like I went back and looked at this. 71% 71% of the blowouts, and I'm going to define that by, you know, playoff games decided by 15 or more points have occurred by the home team, right? So it has kind of this warping effect where, like, if you're better and, you know, your shooting gets going at home, you're more likely uh, to blow out the opposition at home than on the road. That's not going to surprise anyone. But what happens is when you have all these other factors coming together to, like, you know, drive offense and drive scoring, uh, having that kind of hostile environment, it's just a much tougher uh, hill for the road teams to try to climb, and you know Brad Stevens, you know, had a famous quote this week saying, you know, I don't, I don't ever talk about home and road with my team because it just leads to excuses both places. Well. Yeah. Brad, you might want to start talking about it because your team's undefeated at home and they're like 500 on the road. And you know, Mike D'Antoni was you know trying to chuckle along with reporters as he always does, and he was saying, you know, Oracle's a tough place to play because the Warriors play there. It's like, well, Mike, you know, the Warriors play on the road too. <laughs> I mean, they're everywhere. They're really good. You know, your your point is not well taken. The Warriors are tough to beat no matter where they play, and when they get home and have all of those advantages, they're basically impossible to defend. So. All of this was leading me to a conclusion, Andrew, and it's kind of a hot take, but I want to run it by you. Okay.
0: Um. Well, what if, wait, 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 yeah. before we get to the hot take, I just want to say that I'm really glad you brought up the stats to back up your contention that home court matters more today than it did 25 years ago, because I was about to really call you out and claim that you're full of shit, because... To me, maybe I'm just a a sucker for nostalgia, but you watch some of those crowds from 20 years ago. I mean, even those Utah games against the Bulls, like, those fans were right there on the court and were going insane the entire time. Or if you go back to the Garden, like, when it was 97 degrees in there and Red Auerbach was trying to, like, sweat out the Lakers, like... I, I don't know. You just hear so many stories about crazy atmospheres of the past, whereas today there's just so, – like, you're right that there's a lot of noise, but so much of it is just dumb bullshit that I I guess I don't take home court as seriously now as, as I envision it, like, the way it was 30 years ago, um, but –
1: no, I mean, and home court advantage has been a consistent thing the whole way through. I guess what my point is that when you're applying home court advantage to a completely different style of game where there's a lot more points being put up and, like, the volatility that you started this whole conversation mentioning, right? Yeah. That just ex- ex- exacerbates it. You know, it just makes it that much more difficult for teams to go on those back-breaking runs that just, you know, put a game away. Uh, the, the points just accumulate so much more quickly. And
0: Well, you're uh, absolutely right, too, because— for no team is it more true than with the with the Warriors in the Steph Curry era. Like when when they get going in Oracle, it's a different thing, and the crowd is insane, and it just turns into a sort of avalanche, which we absolutely saw in Game Three in that third quarter. And uh, it's so yeah, it's a it's a, a real phenomenon, certainly with Golden State, and certainly yeah, with well, Boston. He-
1: well, here's what I'd say. It's not just the Warriors. I mean, they are the peak example of this. They have the most blowout wins over the last five postseasons combined. Mm-hmm. But Cleveland has consistently done this in recent postseasons. Houston has consistently done this in recent postseasons. Boston, like you mentioned, has done it. Uh, lots of different teams have been able to do it at home. It's just a lot easier to do it uh, in that situation when those role players are playing better, when your energy is better, and, and all the factors that you know are kind of shape conventional wisdom uh, about home court advantage. I would also point out, though, that even Golden State, you know, this super team has been susceptible to being blown out when they go on the road. Yeah. Houston's blown them out, Cleveland's blown them out. Uh, it has happened, you know, fairly regularly uh, over these last five postseasons where you'll get these wild swings uh, in the series where you go to. Golden State, and it's like two blowouts there. You go back to Cleveland; it's two blowouts there. And you know, even the 2016 Finals, which was a seven-game series that oh were, yeah, it's going to be remembered as blowouts. an instant classic. Yeah, it was. It was basically six blowouts, right? Yeah. And so here's here's my proposal, Andrew. Here's the hot take. Okay. What if we took the NBA Finals and we said, look, we we don't want to make rules that decrease scoring. We don't want to make rules that decreased pace because that would be killing the golden goose right like everybody loves the nba because the scoring is up and it's so exciting and so on and so forth right Mm -hmm. but what if we tried to mute that home court advantage by taking the nba finals and putting it on a neutral site right sort of like the super bowl or sort of like the world cup where you had a predetermined location that was going to host the nba finals so it would be like an extended version of all-star weekend in the summer so you'd have all the best parts about all-star weekend the parties the networking uh all the brand events (laughs) without any of the cold weather right yeah you could i mean you could imagine this being hosted in miami vegas la you know you could throw toronto in there i'm sure adam silver and Guys like you who love the internationalization of the NBA. Oh my God! Try to Take throw, it to Europe. Yeah, throw it in London, right? And so the entire NBA world would converge on this one neutral site city, right? And it would be a tight two week event. Uh, if it went four games, you know, it'd probably be even quicker than that. It'd be you know closer to like nine days. You wouldn't have any of the annoying travel going back and forth two two one one one. Yeah, you know basically how they do it right now you would probably have fresher athletes uh, and hopefully you would just have a smoother series where you wouldn't have those crazy wild swings when it changes venue and uh, you know the best teams would be able to sort of you know be it would be the team that could show up the best you know without the support of their home crowd look it obviously disadvantages you know the fans in the bay area or the fans in cleveland who want to you know go to the finals in their home building and maybe celebrate a title there but I don't hear a lot of people complaining that a team doesn't have home court advantage for the Super Bowl, right? Or I guess home field advantage in the NFL. <laughs> I mean, to to me, it seems like the benefit of having this giant event where like everyone goes there for two weeks—it's this just extravaganza of basketball—and you don't, you know, again, you have a smoother series in an ideal world. I think that that would actually outweigh any of the negatives. What do you think?
0: Um. I have a number of responses. First of all, I laugh anytime you bring up the NFL just because I think it's hilarious that you've completely ignored that sport for like 15 years. And uh, and that's one where I do think you're going to come out on the right side of history. But as far as your idea, first of all, you know your audience and I really appreciate you. Making the comparison to All-Star Weekend, which, as you know, is my favorite event of the year uh, in the NBA. And I do think just because what I love about it and we talked about it earlier this year, it's like you see all these different worlds within basketball converge in one place for 72 hours. And I think what you're describing has the potential to be the same thing. So I'm in for that reason alone. Um, I don't think like selling this as a solution to blowouts is less convincing to me but i think that it's a great opportunity regardless for the nba to grow its product and make the finals more of an event that like ev- instead of 2 weeks of super bowl run up it's 2 weeks of basketball with like every every game every 3 days there's a game um, or maybe 10 exactly. days and like you could really make that work. Part of me hearing you describe it, like, I understand wanting to rotate cities, but I also think it would be really cool if you just put it in Vegas permanently and, and Vegas became like the unofficial second home of the NBA <laughs> in the summer. Um, because I'm always up for a, a trip to Vegas, uh, and I think most people would be. They've got all, all kinds of hotels, they cheap flights. I don't know, man. I I don't really see a flaw, except I'm sure teams would be pissed off that they had to sacrifice revenue from ticket sales.
1: Yeah, don't you think there would be more revenue? I mean, first of all, you could auction off the hosting rights, right? So you're going to make some money yeah, there. True. And I think it it would just be a bigger deal, a bigger showcase. I think people would care more. I also think it would help for the globalization of the game, because right now, like, Let's say you're, you know, Andrew Sharp, like, you know, Shanghai reporter, right? Uh Like, you have no idea right now where you're going to be covering the finals, right? Like, you assume it's going to be in
0: the Bay Area, but are you ready to buy your $5,000 plane (laughs) ticket to get here? (laughs) I don't Uh, know. I think the Bay Area is a safe bet for at least the next four or five years, but continue. Okay, fine. But do you know where you're going after games one and two? No. I mean... Boston,
1: Cleveland hotels, all this stuff. I mean, that is a real hiccup for a a lot of people. And I'm sure it's an impediment to a lot of global coverage. Now, if you just told everybody guys, the finals are going to be in Vegas starting June one, if you are Andrew Sharp in uh, Shanghai or Delhi or wherever book your tickets now. You know you're going to be there. You're going to be there for two weeks. Get yourself that nice room at the Luxor and let's just have a basketball orgy. I think people would get into that. I think you would have more international global coverage. I think it would be a bigger deal. And I actually do think it could help here with the blowout problem too, Andrew, because I'm not sure this is one that's going to go away. I mean, it's not just, it's not just a Warriors issue, as we mentioned. Uh, The NBA is going to want offense to continue like this and we've seen the defenses even the smartest defensive minds don't really have solutions for slowing these teams down do they I mean yeah uh, Houston's tried a really innovative strategy with all of the switching right it works pretty well for two games it didn't work at game three <laughs> they got run off the court worst playoff defeat uh, in their franchise history and This is the best team in their franchise history. To me, that's a major red flag. And so I think even if Kevin Durant were to leave this summer, you know, breaking up the the Warriors dynasty, even if the rosters had better competitive balance than Mm -hmm. they do currently, and and that's a huge if, because I don't really see that happening. If anything, I see more and more team ups happening over these next couple of years. I don't see how they get around this blowouts issue if they continue to give teams home court advantage. And I think, you know, for the first three rounds of the playoffs, you know, under my proposal, you would still get home court. So would it make the regular season totally meaningless? Like, for example, you know, Houston still would have had home court in the Western Conference Finals. That's fine. The only time you would take away that advantage would be during the finals when you're really, you know, capturing the the most eyeballs, the most casual fans and really trying to spread the game. Right. Because that's what the finals is about. Basketball at its best. And if we get, you know, 20 point blowouts here and there, the games will be good, uh, but they won't be great. Right. And, and we want those great tense moments where the players are hitting these amazing three pointers, but it's not because they're already up by 15 points It's because that three is like Kyrie's, you know, a few years ago where that decides a championship, right? That those are the moments that you want to maximize. And right now I'm afraid the NBA is not doing that.
0: Yeah. It's, it's funny. I mean, I feel a responsibility to push back as a co-host here, but I am 100% in on the rotating finals host city idea, Uh, and I don't know if it would totally solve the problem, and we can get to that in a second, but like, the NBA should absolutely look into making that a reality in the 2020s and beyond, Um, so congratulations, I had never thought of it that way, but man that would be fun. As for the problem that we're talking about here though, do you think part of it is that as teams and or players have gotten smarter about recognizing the value of rest and the importance of conserving energy that sometimes they just sort of check out halfway through these games? Like when when a team, like I don't blame Harden and the Rockets for shutting things down when Steph Curry goes off the way he did in that in that third quarter. And then that's how you get a 40 point game. Is it's just is like Harden is smart for being like, I'm gonna save save my bullets for game four. And I, I think we've seen a lot of that as well. And that's not necessarily related to the home and away thing. It's just players kind of are more conscious of uh, of how these series play out.
1: Well what you're talking about is managing a series, right? Yeah. Like, you know, pacing yourself essentially.
0: Well, I think it happens with it coaches did... and players.
1: I agree, but I think it's happening a lot more on the road than at home. That's my point okay. is like when you break down the home road split, those blowouts are occurring significantly more often at home. And so uh you know, it's no surprise when Houston says, "Hey, look, you know, Steph just goes nuts in this third quarter in Oracle. What chance do we have of you know coming back out of this 25 point hole? Let's just go ahead and punch it, right? Mm-hmm. Are they going to have that same approach if the game's at home? I would guess not. You know, you probably have a little bit more hope that you can catch fire and, and you, you'd push a little bit harder. And so I think that even the venue uh, location here can factor into those kinds of decisions in terms of how to manage a series. I mean, you're not going to want to punt away your home court games." Uh, if you don't have to. So uh, I think what you're saying is a real phenomenon, and I think it's happening more and more in part because these teams are going on the runs that we're, we're talking about uh, at home regularly. And when you know you have more home games coming and you know you have to manage your star player's workload because they do so much, uh, the temptation to kind of call it early uh, is greater. And no, I don't blame the teams for doing that, yeah. but I think it's part of the same problem. And uh, I think you would probably have a lessened effect if you put all of the games on a neutral site, I really believe that.
0: Yeah. Uh, one other thing that has been interesting to me as I've thought more about this the past week or so, and it's kind of become like a, a first take topic. It's like, what's wrong with the NBA playoffs. Um, but what's interesting to me is that I think some of the underwhelming playoff games are accidentally highlighting how the NBA product actually works and why it works. Like, if you look at the the league, it's clearly growing right now. It's probably the only major sport whose share of audience is actually increasing, but it's not necessarily increasing because of the actual basketball games. Like I think the league is doing really well because it has all these incredible personalities who are super available and super engaging and there's all sorts of off-season intrigue that you can kind of track all year long, and it's just really interesting to talk about basketball at any hour of the day, and I think that has made the content more attractive than anything else in sports right now, but you look at the games, and like most of these aren't that compelling, and the league definitely has some issues to iron out. I think if you your, your finals idea is great, and I'm all in, but I also think that there's there's more that they're going to have to tweak. Um, and I understand the casual sports fan who looks at all this and is like, eh, I don't really give a shit about the NBA playoffs. Um, like, one of my best friends listens to our pod regularly and really enjoys it, but he watches the NHL playoffs instead of the NBA playoffs. And I, I think that there's a decent amount of people who follow a similar pattern where they're like down to listen to a like 80-minute podcast about the NBA, but aren't necessarily locked in to a 20-point Cavs win in the NBA playoffs. It's just kind of a strange dynamic that I was thinking about.
1: I mean, you're a real renaissance man. I don't know a single person
0: who watches hockey. So that's, that's <laughs> impressive. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, well, look, but the Caps are doing well no, this year, so I've got more friends who are who are into it. I'm
1: like 75% serious <laughs> with that. But um uh, uh, I think your your point is well taken and I think casual fans though are not necessarily tuning out. I mean, the ratings for the Western Conference Finals were crazy. 7.8 yeah. million people watched a 41 point blowout and I think the difference for the NBA is that you know, uncompetitive games are not necessarily boring games, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're getting that Steph Curry flurry in the third quarter, you know, all of those highlight reels and packages and the, you know, the shimmy and the, you know, the F bomb that he put out there and all that stuff that has a lasting staying power that can carry multiple news cycles, even if it's a 41 point game. Right. So like there's different ways for people to sort of uh, interact with the sport. And I do think that's, you know, pretty unique. Like you're saying, personalities play a big role in that. Um, I guess what my point is, and of course I'm bringing it back to basketball because I'm boring and that's what I always (laughs) do. But I guess my point is like the NBA could really have its cake and eat it too. If not only is Steph going nuts and having those moments, but But it's a close game It's consistently happening in those close games, because that's where you're, you're capturing everybody. Now it's like, I have to tune in because the Warriors and Cavs are tied in game seven and LeBron just tracked down a block from, you know, 50 feet away. Right. Um, yeah, you know that's how the league is really really going to be able to maximize its its, uh, its success. And I think these blowouts are kind of a first world problem, you know like it, it's not the end of the world that you have such great offenses that the the games uh, are double digit victories constantly. Uh, but it would be great if we could find some solutions to you know narrow those margins and outside of you know kind of stripping these teams of home court advantage, I'm not totally sure what else you can do. Like, I'm open to anyone else's alternate solutions. If you've got ideas, you know, send them into openfloormail at gmail.com. But please, don't just say break up the Warriors or break up the super teams or whatever, because we have to live in a reality-based world, Andrew. Like, that's not going to happen. These guys are all so competitive. They want to play together, and uh, we need to figure out what else the league could do to kind of— uh, you know, save us from some of these these bigger ups. Yeah,
0: and you mentioned the ratings. The ratings are up, which is part of what makes this so interesting to me is I, I wonder whether there the NBA is growing and still leaving like a sizable chunk of audience on the table because there's clearly, like their market share is increasing. And uh, if these games were actually close, like who knows how much bigger it could get. Um, but I, I don't want to turn this into like, a brand discussion or like a PowerPoint presentation about market shares. But it's, it's an interesting thing that like you said, like the NBA is going to have to get creative because I agree with you that there are no obvious solutions. Um, and you can't just like go to Kevin Durant and be like, you're on the Lakers now, or you're on the Celtics now. Uh, but it's, uh, it's something that they're going to have to address to continue growing into the next decade. Um, but listen, You mentioned that you had a James Harden thought and uh, going into game four. So before we move on to talk Carl Towns, give me your Harden take at this point in the series.
1: Well, I just think that it's all built to this moment, right? This was the season that was different for Houston. They won more games. They played better balanced uh, offense and defense. They explored new methods for scoring and they got an MVP campaign uh, from James Harden and, Game three represented the single worst defeat of his entire NBA career. It was worse than, you know, game six against the Spurs last year. That was 39 points. This one was 41 points. And I think the main takeaway here is last year's defeat to San Antonio was so defining for a lot of people uh, because Harden never had the opportunity to respond, right? He didn't go down guns blazing. He just went out with a whimper. It was a season-ending loss, and, and just that was it. And I think here he is again humbled and humiliated i mean steph curry shimmying in his face after draining a step back three i mean the antics were just like completely over the <laughs> top uh in game three and you know harden uh, you are already called out some of his you know chippy post-game uh, podium moments i mean he was really really over it <laughs> when they asked him about curry's game uh, right. and his turnaround after game three i mean he was just really frustrated and i think Game four, game five, and and maybe game six, if it does occur, represents Harden's ability to launch a response, to push back on this sort of narrative that has built up over the last three or four postseasons, which says once Houston sort of loses hope in a playoff series, Harden and the Rockets crumble, right? You can go back to 2015. It happened against the Warriors. Uh, It happened uh, against the Spurs last year. Like I mentioned, it happened in the 2016 Western Conference Finals. Uh, you know, it's happened consistently, uh, you know, for Harden and for the Rockets. So this is his opportunity. He can't go down with the whimper again, Andrew. He has got to, I mean, look, I don't expect him to lead a miraculous comeback against Colton State, uh-huh. but Harden needs to play like Harden here. He can't just kind of slink into the summer again, because I think if that were ha- were to happen, the critics would ramp it up uh, five times more than they already have. And I'm not sure what the counter argument would be. You know, if you go down easy here, uh, if you just decide, look, we don't have an answer for the warriors and, uh, you know, I'm just going to score, you know, 16 points on 15 shots. And that's going to be it. Uh, I think you're sort of walking right into all those negative stereotypes that have sort of built up here over the last couple of years.
0: Yeah. I, I will be interested to see how he responds, um, in game four, I, because game three, and I'm not going to act like this is how the entire series has been. I wish I could as a like unabashed Steph stan. But in Game 3 in particular, it was just stark, the differences between them. I mean, basically, Houston is seeking out Curry and trying to get him isolated on defense. And Curry was holding up pretty well. And Golden State is doing the same thing to Harden and Harden was getting torched and curry has been better on offense and better on defense than james Harden. and in game three or at least in game three and he was just the better all-around player uh which has got to be rough for for Harden. and uh i i think it, for the sake of the league i hope he bounces back i don't really see it happening um and again it's it's hard to grade anyone on the Warriors' curve because they are impossible in five different ways, but uh, but in that game. But do you do you agree with me though? It's not about
1: what he does to beat the Warriors. Exactly. It's about yeah. It's about how, how he, he loses. plays. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm not a moral victories guy by any stretch, right? But this is a defining question moment referendum for Harden, the competitor, uh, however you want to phrase it. I mean, this is is like the purest version that you can get. The worst loss of your career by a guy who has knocked you out of the playoffs multiple times uh, in the past, and you've been dogged by questions and annoyed by questions for years. Uh, about your you know tendency to kind of crumble once a series gets away from you, you can't just crumble again and expect people to give you a pass for it. It's not going
0: to happen. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, we'll see. We'll see what he comes back with. And before we move on, we should add not to double back and re-enter the Durant argument matrix, but we did get a ton of great KD emails, and we're not going to go through each one. Because I think it would really run this argument into the ground. But thank you to everyone who wrote in. I feel like probably 80% of the people agreed with me. 10% were Team Gulliver. And 10% were like, that was the most uncomfortable podcast I've ever listened to. But, uh, but I think I speak for both of us. We enjoyed every one, right?
1: To be honest, after like the 7th or 8th, 100th person telling me that I was an idiot and I didn't understand... <laughs> maybe i I enjoyed each one okay it was a rare moment
0: where everyone agreed with me
1: that i was out of touch with the the fan mentality and so on (laughs) and so forth Uh,
0: yeah it was you know what can
1: i do all i could do is stand up here on my mountaintop andrew and sing the the virtues of, of this beautiful game, and if people don't want to listen, if they don't want to open their hearts, if they're not ready, then what what else can I do? That's
0: their problem, not yours, Ben. You're you're doing great. Uh, let's move. Let's talk about Carl towns very quickly. Uh, Brandon says this Carl towns thing is about to get insane. Think back to last season and the weirdest story we heard all year during a halftime stunt. The T-Wolves mascot went flying down the stairs and broke Carl Towns' father's leg. And then the Wolves were being idiots about the hospital bills for Towns' dad. Do you guys remember that? So they've had beef with the organization for over a year, and that's before all the stuff with Tibbs this season. I'll never forget this season watching Tibbs call Towns a fucking idiot straight to his face after a turnover in the fourth quarter. So that's Brandon. Where do you stand? Uh, first of all, great email. I had totally forgotten about the mascot incident with Cat's dad. But where do you stand on on the the cat situation in Minnesota? Did you listen to the Zach Lopod that started all this? I did. Uh, I mean,
1: I told you two, three months ago that if I was Towns' camp or his people or his agent or whatever, mm-hmm. I would be entering this, you know, upcoming, uh, you know, max negotiation with a list of demands you know I think it's insane how many minutes he plays I think uh you know the fact that he's been able to be so healthy uh throughout his career it's pretty miraculous for a guy his size and and what he's being asked to do and if I was his people I would want Uh, you know, no offense to Tom Thibodeau, I would probably want someone else managing his development here over the next five years, because I would be really worried about, uh, you know, the risk of injury or breakdown or all the other things that can happen when, uh, you know, young bigs are put through that level uh, of play and and that level of constant pressure. And that's nothing to even say about, you know, the emotional or the mental side of, you know, typical coach player arguments. I mean, it's just about a, a body management perspective. So, am I surprised that there is some level of tension developing between how, you know, Tibbs manages his players and his rotation and the main guys in that rotation? No, not at all. I mean, it takes a a true, uh, you know, psychopath for a lack of a better word, (laughs) like Jimmy Butler to respond positively to the Tom Thibodeau approach, right? Like you have to be cut from a very certain type of cloth. Yeah. Uh, you know, wanting to be out on the court for 48 minutes, every single night you know long-term repercussions be damned uh, for that approach by Thibodeau to work and even in Butler's case like he's had injuries and you know we all kind of anticipate his prime being shortened so uh, I guess if I was people close to to Carl Anthony Towns I would be making a pretty big deal about this you know I'm not sure how high the ceiling there is in Minnesota over these next five years in part because Towns has just not developed as an elite defensive player Uh, but you know I don't see that that sort of being this incubator of like the NBA's next great dynasty right like I'm not sure it's going to happen there and so uh, if I was his people I would be making noise now I'd be trying to get whatever concessions I could you know heading into the the contract negotiation and if push came to shove and that somehow wound up being a trade out of town, which I I really don't see that uh, happening this summer that's not the worst case in the world either right like okay let's say he gets traded out if you're him aren't you happy like aren't you probably having an active role uh, in your destination aren't you probably going to an organization that's had more playoff success than minnesota certainly Uh, yeah you are so if i'm a timberwolves fan uh, to flip this around I'm completely paranoid. I'm screaming for Thibodeau to be fired. <laughs> and I'm trying to find a coach who is just going to appease Cat and give him whatever he wants.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because it's it's one of those things that you could easily just shrug off. But I do think there's there's stuff there that's real. And it, it's unfair. I said Z, the Zach Lopod that started all this. It wasn't Zach who started all this. Because if you listen to what he actually says – he was saying that things are not great up internally up there with Tibbs, which I had heard as well when I was in Boston. And then Windhorse jumps in, making the point that Cat could demand a trade, and I I think both things are true. I think on Tibbs, like he just fired a bunch of guys on the basketball side, and apparently there's sort of a cold war. With him and other parts of the organization in Minnesota, and it just sounds like things are a mess. And you and I have been on the pod saying all along that things probably won't end well for Tibbs up in Minnesota. And if there's any news here, it's that it's happening quicker than I think a lot of people expected. Um, but with Cat, what the point that Winhorst made, which I think is really smart, is it doesn't matter whether anyone has reported that the Wolves have, like, a, a real desire or intent to trade Cat, but Windhorse was saying, essentially, that the only way you can get traded and remain Supermax eligible is if you are traded on your rookie deal, so if Cat has dreams of getting that $200 million at some point and also wants out of Minnesota, the time to force a trade is, is sometime in the next 12 to 24 months, and if I were, so if I were on his his team, his like CAA team, I would have like paid attention to the past five days of basketball news and been like, you know, there is no fire behind all this smoke, but let's light a match because let's get him out of Minnesota. And I personally, as someone who has really enjoyed Cat's game, like I would like to see him in a different situation. I know we have some T-Wolves loyal listeners and i feel horrible saying it in, like to them but uh
1: don't don't be afraid of a man just say what say what you
0: feel get hit your take I, honestly i would love to see him in uh, in a situation like boston i think it would be a fascinating test for brad stevens because cat has some real weaknesses uh defensively and it, like if stevens can somehow turn him into horford then he is even more of the hall of fame coach that everyone says he is uh, but uh but I don't know. It, it it would be. I guess it's a reminder of how crazy this summer could get. I don't. I agree with you. I think the Wolves are like trading. Cat is a last resort, and they'd sooner fire Tibbs than do it. But um, but if I were Cat, I would be thinking about my options. Well, let me ask you. Big picture. I mean,
1: Cat did not have the world's greatest playoff debut, but obviously he's very very young. But mm-hmm. when we look at style of play and the importance of know, defensive versatility and covering ground and, you know, all of those things. Are you coming away from these playoffs a little bit uh, lower on Carl Anthony Towns maybe than you were, say, six months ago? Because I'm having that urge yeah. to kind of say, look, Cat's really, really good. He's definitely a franchise player, but would he have a role in this Western Conference Finals right now? Uh, that, to me, is questionable. It's
0: certainly an open question, but I also feel like we go through this rhythm with players where they hit the scene and everyone's like, Holy shit, this guy is going to be a top 20 player of all time. And then weaknesses are exposed and everyone kind of sobers up. Uh, but I, I do think that, like, there's a level of skill that Cat has offensively that is, like, really, really special. Um, and if I were concerned, it's less about Cat and more about the lack of improvement from Towns over the last two years, which I think is is partly a Tibbs issue. Where like we haven't Tibbs came to Minnesota and everyone expected that defense to at, at at the very least we expected the defense to improve, and the defense hasn't really. And maybe that's on Towns, but I think it's part partly on Tibbs as well. And Tibbs also doesn't really know how to use Towns on offense, so that's part. Part of me saying it would be interesting to see him in a different situation is is because, like, I haven't given up on Towns, but I do think that, like, the mix in Minnesota didn't look very healthy for for most of last year.
1: Let me ask you uh, the Wiggins corollary to all of this, right? Like, if you're Towns, do you want to commit, you know, your next five years or six years of your life to – a core that also includes Andrew Wiggins and really no other major young pieces, right? Like eventually Butler is going to sort of fade from the importance of this team. And you know, the other moves that Thibodeau has made have been pretty short term veteran oriented type moves, you know, the Crawfords of the world and the Teagues of the world. Those guys are going to kind of cycle through with whatever other replacement parts you've got. Yeah. If your towns like is, is Wiggins your you know number two option for your career or are you thinking, like, I don't necessarily want to be uh, aligned with a Rudy Gay type or uh, a Carmelo Anthony type or whoever else you want to throw into this mix in terms of guys who have had Wiggins' you know, type of game but maybe never really broke through on that elite winning type level? Like, if you're Townsend and you're trying to win titles, isn't it easier to do that for a trade given the presence of Wiggins on the books? And I guess if you're Minnesota – you could flip that around and say, look, if we're really going to build this thing around Towns, don't we need to get rid of Wiggins as soon as possible?
0: Yeah, I, I I, think if you're Minnesota, that becomes priority one this summer is find an offer for Wiggins that can make them better in the short term and kind of make them more flexible going into the next decade. And maybe that is enough to kind of ease Cat's concerns. Uh, I don't know if it would be. Because all the points you made about his long-term fit there are still valid, and if he if he has the leverage to force his way out, like that's not the worst call in the world. Um, but if I'm town, certainly I look at Wiggins due to make 150 million dollars, and like uh, Rudy Gay, it, if anything, might be giving him too much credit for what he was last season. So, and, and it's not to bash him, but like we've done, we've done plenty of Wiggins bashing on this pod over the past, over the past, like nine months. But uh, yeah, that, I think that's the, the obvious play for Minnesota is if you're, if you're trying to change the mix there, see if you can get a, a, an offer that makes sense for Wiggins first.
1: Yeah, I mean, all this just makes me so glad as a Giannis Inc. board member that the Bucks listened <laughs> to us, Andrew, and hired Coach Bud because I feel like Coach Bud and just what he's going to be able to do with their offense, and you know, he's got two legit A-list superstars with Giannis and Chris Middleton. I mean, that the Bucks are rising, and this Timberwolves show. I mean, they made the playoffs. They got over that hump. They issued the press release. They were so excited that they made the postseason. They had to celebrate it with the press release. I'm just a little bit nervous. It's not nearly as bright as I thought it would be, say, two years ago.
0: Yeah, and not only that, with Giannis and and Bud joining forces in Milwaukee, but did you see he had an exclusive audience with Budenholzer uh, before before the deal went official, and they got breakfast together with him and your your guy, Chris Middleton?
1: Well, I I guarantee they were eating Wheaties, because that's the breakfast of champions, and that's (laughs) the only— (laughs) <laughs> possible food that Giannis and Chris Middleton could be eating with their new coach. Well,
0: I like to think that we are shadow presidents of the Milwaukee bucks. They're, are following all of our wise advice. And, uh, I can't wait. I mean, I, the sky is the limit for Giannis Inc as of, as of now. And it certainly looks better than Minnesota, but the main reason I wanted to end on all this is because I, it's a reminder of how much fun this summer is going to be. So the, Current conference finals matchups may be a little bit underwhelming, although Game 5 Celtics-Cavs is going to be pretty awesome. But the bottom line is that the, lo- the league is about to lose its mind in the next three months. So uh, I'm excited. And with that, I will let you go because we both have to get back to work here and uh, we'll link up later in the week.
1: Yeah, I think that the rest of these conference finals do have some pretty big implications, right? Like how Boston does in this series could be a huge X factor in terms of what they do this summer. How Houston responds to the haymaker from Steph Curry. Like you've mentioned how expensive their roster is getting and, and what kind of pieces do they try to put around Harden. I mean, I think that's on the table. Uh, obviously, Kevin Durant and LeBron are both free agents. So what happens here uh, in this series and going forward in the next couple of weeks, that's going to have probably implications in terms of you know what happens this summer so uh anyone who thinks oh it's a 20 point game i'm turning it off don't yeah uh, there, there's there's plenty of subplots but Andrew, wait wait, wait. our listeners i have one more yeah. thing
0: to add first of all yes i i'm with you watch the nba playoffs don't watch hockey basketball is the superior sport number two though i just realized that like five minutes ago i was advocating cat to boston and I think that was kind of like my white light moment where Celtics fandom has gone way too far. And uh, I feel embarrassed, guilty, disgusted with myself. And I'm going to try to do better later in the week because this this bit is it's not working for me anymore. Could trade Cat, oh, but don't trade him to Boston.
1: Andrew, to be honest, I was going to raise uh, a fuss about it, but it's better <laughs> than the alternative, which would have been, hey, do you think we can get cap for Jan Mahimi, Kelly Oubre <laughs> in a first round pick? Because we've been hearing that for two years from you. So, oh, you know, God. I'm not sure where the bit ends and where uh, the, the bit begins. <laughs> Me neither. But That's
0: part of the problem. <laughs> I think
1: I think it's all one giant bit for you. But look, Andrew, our listeners can email in questions, comments, concerns. Carl Anthony Towns trade scenarios and all the rest of it to open floor mail at gmail.com Openfloormail at gmail.com we'd love to hear what you think about the neutral site finals idea or any other ideas you've got in terms of how can we you know tighten up some of these finals games also andrew the open floor globe needs to go to apple podcasts load up uh, our page open floor you search two words very easy to spell scroll down you will see rate and review Tap five stars. We really, really appreciate the support. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or whatever other podcasting services allow you to rate and review. It helps us a lot. All right, LeBron. All right, Andrew. (laughs) Until later this week, I'll talk to you. All right,
0: man. Take it easy. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.